the scene was dead anyway. A music scene lives, a music scene dies. The stories, however, are immortal. The scene was dead anyway is a look into the lives, communities and music scenes that help shape an entire generation. Hello and welcome to The Scene Was Dead Anyway. I'm your host, Rick Walland. This is episode number 12. And today I'm joined by Ian Martin. He runs a record label called Call and Response. He's based in Japan. In his own words, stupid fucking childish noise since 2005. Comprising new music releases, live events and DJ parties. Call and Response Records is a Tokyo-based label specializing in post-punk, new wave and indie music from the Japanese underground music scene. The label started in 2005 and has released a number of albums and EPs, compilation albums and smaller DIY projects. We organized the regular Call and Response Indie Disco and annual Koenji Pop Festival events in and around the Tokyo suburb of Koenji, as well as various other events in Tokyo and around Japan. Call and Response is also associated with the Japanese music blog Clear and Refreshing, which features reviews and articles on a broader range of Japanese pop, indie and underground music. You can also keep up with Call and Response on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Call and Response Tokyo, all one word. And Twitter, twitter.com, C-A-R records. That's twitter.com forward slash C-A-R records. Ian is also a mutual friend of Dave McMahon and Rio Taro Aoki, who's two of my previous guests. So they're all kind of part of the same uh, underground scene in Tokyo. Before we start, if you're watching on YouTube, please could you like and subscribe to my channel to help the podcast grow. And if you're listening on Apple iTunes, please could you leave a review under the ratings and review tab. You can also find me on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash the scene was dead anyway. I'm also on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash the scene was dead anyway. And I'm on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash TSWDA. And here's the full podcast with Ian Martin. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the show, Ian Martin of Call and Response Records. How's it going? Uh, not bad, you know, as things as things are in this kind of weird situation. I'm doing okay. Um, for people who don't know you, know you and your and your label, would you mind just uh, giving us a little intro and tell us a bit about yourself and and your label? Um, sure. Um, well, I, I live in Tokyo. Um, I've been here for quite a long time now. Um, but coming up to it'll be 20 years this year I think wow. um, and yeah I mean I, I write about music um, you know occasionally um, and I wrote a book about the the music scene in Japan um, it came out a few years ago and still sort of struggling to kind of follow it up with anything you know sort of second album syndrome <laughs> yeah. and um, I run call and response records which is a small 
indie label based based here in Tokyo. So we're dealing mostly with like bands that I found in the the underground scene here, and you know some of the cool music that I find around me. Great. Um, but obviously, you're actually originally from the UK. Um, yeah. From Bristol, is that right? Yeah. So if you if you wouldn't mind just going back to talk a little bit about what kind of um, what kind of music you were listening to early on uh, growing up and who were your kind of inspirations and I mean when I was when I was growing up I mean it was for a long time it was just my parents records you know just like Fleetwood Mac, Dire Straits, Paul Simon that kind of stuff um, and then these sort of weird slightly frightening kind of for me as a kid you know folk revival stuff like kind of Steel Eye Span or like Gordon Giltrap, Davy Graham. Like my dad had a lot of John Fay records. And so those things when I was a child sort of really intrigued me. Um, they, they were sort of intriguing and frightening and didn't really sort of think about them at the time, but maybe that's something that's ended up having a bigger effect on me than I really thought. But like the first music I really got into, I mean, I, I was sort of a teenager around the time of like the Britpop generation. So that was like the first new music that I discovered. Yeah. for myself or that I was aware of you know so what what kind of Britpop bands did you did you like at the time like I mean I, I was on the on the blur side of the blur oasis thing that we had to choose at the time I mean from that period it's like the I suppose the stuff that stuck with me most from it because I don't really listen to that kind of stuff very much now but um, pulp and for some reason, Lush really ended up kind of sticking with me uh, for a long time. I know of um, Pulp, but not, I've not heard of Lush. Uh, sort of. I mean, they, they came out of the... They, they were tied in with the shoegaze scene when it sort of first appeared, but then they, they made this one very kind of Brit-poppy record, uh, like their final one, that was... You know, I think nowadays people kind of tend to respect them for the shoegaze stuff and sort of pretend the Britpop record didn't happen but I think it was it was a really good album as well they, they were both sides of them were good I mean uh, growing up in Bristol it's weird because there was like all that stuff blowing up in Bristol at the time like um you know Portishead and Massive Attack were kind of getting huge like uh, at that same time but I wasn't so aware of like to to me that stuff was like it was popular enough that it was like that's music that you see on TV mm, for me. Yeah, um, and I didn't really kind of relate that stuff to what was happening around me in Bristol so much at the time. I, I was just kind of not tuned into whatever kind of frequency that stuff was happening um, until it got sort of really famous. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when when did you start to sort of go to shows and that um, and I mean, did you play? Did you play music yourself, or have yours just been on the kind of music promotion side? No, I mean, I wasn't. Uh, I'm not a musician. God, <laughs> um, anyone who's heard the music that I, I try to make would tell you that. But um, I was. I don't know. Like, I mean, the, I think the first gig I saw was just going to see. Um, one of my classmates' bands doing like a, a battle of the bands at Moles Club in Bath, 
um, I can't remember what their name was now. I think they were called like Victor or something like that. Just sort of indie rock band. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was like the first gig I think I I went to when I was like, oh, you know, I'm going out to shows now. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're one of the cool kids. <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, Most of the discussion today is going to be about your time in Japan, but was there, were you kind of getting involved in the scene in Bristol or was it, you you kind of because obviously you moved to Japan in two thousand and one, so wouldn't have been that much time to really become familiar with the the scene there. Yeah, and, and I was at university in Bournemouth as well, so that was um, you know when I started getting more into the you know going out to shows. I was living quite far away from Bristol, although um, there there were um, the the one thing. The thing that really stood out, like, okay, when I was uh, like a teenager, we'd, you know, we'd go into a town and we'd, um, you know, just like where the indie nights were, it's like, it was at the beer keller and then uh, the beer keller on um, Fridays, maybe, and then on Saturdays, the Thecla or the other way around. But yeah, like the beer keller and the Thecla were, were the places where the, uh, the sort of the indie nights were. Hmm. And that, that was just like going out to, you know, there'd be DJs and stuff and we weren't watching bands. But then in Bath at Moles, um, they used to have on Thursday nights, every second Thursday, they used to have um, Purr, which was, you know, there'd be a couple of live bands every time and the DJs playing like this sort of kind of awesome, much more under the radar kind of trash punk and sort of indie pop and stuff like that. And so that I think, although I wasn't like involved in any um in anything really um the per nights really stuck with me and the stuff that i started doing later on when i was in japan i think i um that probably was a big influence on me um that rings a bell really yeah cool that per, per does ring a bell um mm-hmm. i've heard that before uh, part of a lot the of the cool bands that were sort of going around would end up going through that those nights anyway around that time so that was when you sort of started to get into the more kind of uh, I suppose underground alternative uh, styles of music and genres was through that those nights, like you said. Maybe, maybe yeah. I mean, it's when I, um, I think it was probably a big influence on me, sort of um, trying to develop my own music taste instead of just like what was on uh, Radio mm. One. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so you moved to Japan in 2001. Um, yeah. What was the reason for moving or reasons for moving to, to, to Japan? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just didn't know what I was... Um, I didn't want to make a decision about my life. And I thought that like going to Japan for like a year or two was a way of you know delaying having to make any sort of decisions oh, okay. about what yeah. I wanted to do with my life for you know just a couple of years longer. I think that's the main reason that I came over here. So just to just to try something new, but I mean, you must have had some uh, obviously some interest in Japan before, because uh, I, I was sure, reading I one of your other uh, interviews talking about some uh, like Cornelius and uh, Shonen Knife, these bands that you, the Japanese bands that inspired you. So I guess there was I some. Yeah, like I definitely. I would have known who they were before I went, but it wasn't really music that brought me over to Japan. Cause oh. like, you know, I, I studied um, film. That was my um, my background. 
and I I had some interest in Japanese film at the time that um, uh, you know I, I'm not sort of a massive kind of film nerd now but um, I think when, when I was when I was young I was like oh I'm going to be like the next Quentin Tarantino or something <laughs> um, then after a while I just started thinking I started realizing oh no you have to work with too many other people if you want to make films that's kind of, it sounds like a pain in the ass um, but I, I definitely had some sort of in yeah some kind of image of Japan or some interest in Japan that came from like watching movies back in the you know in the 90s you know watching like Tampopo or something like that mm. and I'd read books by like Haruki Murakami and things like that so uh, I, I had yeah sort of image of the country you yeah know, anime in the 90s as well similar yeah similar for me i have a lot of like you know murakami's like i love murakami so um but yeah i have a lot of connections to japan like in different ways so i am thinking about moving out there at some point so um how how was the uh, so how was the transition then uh moving to the other side of the world and mm. totally um, different culture and well i mean the thing that struck me most about Japan when I first visited was how similar it was that you know I just thought oh big cities are kind of the same everywhere in the world aren't they um, and so the, the differences kind of work on you a little bit or they, they worked on me a little bit more subtly just like walking around a supermarket feels a bit different that kind of thing mm. um, but the I, I I do think the music scene, getting into the music scene here was sort of like my way of trying to find a part of the, you know, new country to sort of fit in with. Um, you know, I didn't want to just hang around with other sort of white people um, yeah. while I was here. I know, I know, <laughs> um, I know what you mean. Yeah. I wanted to have like my own sort of connection with the culture. But I, I wasn't the sort of person who was going to be like, oh, I'm going to learn sort of um i don't know like some sort of traditional japanese crafts or i'm going to get like super into buddhism or like martial arts or whatever um i don't know I, I needed to find my own way of doing it and the music scene was the way that i did um mm. Mm. it was a very music scene here is very small very i don't i mean i don't mean it's small it's, there's hundreds of venues in tokyo but it's small in the sense that the gigs themselves there's not that many people in them and you're kind of it's quite intimate really the um i felt like the border or the boundary between artists and audience was very sort of permeable mm. and that, that was it, it that made it easy to kind of step into and feel like oh you know this is my community you know yeah, so that I guess that brings us to to the next question about your the label that you you started, Call and Response mm. Records. So that was around right. two thousand and four, is that right? Kind of. The label started in two thousand and five. It was it went in steps. I think um, two thousand and three. I started writing a blog about music called um, Clear and Refreshing, which. Um, I was just sort of writing about gigs I was going to, or just like the CDs and CDRs that I was picking up from mm, bands. Mm. Um, 
and then like about after doing that for about a year i started organizing some shows because you know you go out to a gig and there's five bands playing and you're interested in two of them and the other three are garbage and so i started thinking, well if i organize it then all five of them are going to be something that i want to see <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> so and then after about a year of doing that i was like well let's make a, a compilation cd with like some of these bands that i'm I like and the label sort of came out of that mm. um and so yeah so, yeah go on sorry oh it's okay so obviously we we kind of touched a little bit on on the the kind of relationship with the audience and the, and the band and the artist so that's kind of what the the kind of thinking behind the name call and response would you be, talk about about the bit about that like i mean so it started with this blog called Clear and Refreshing, and the text on that, the, the name on the name of that just came from the text on a like a can of chuhai, like sort of fruity alcoholic drinks. Um, and so when I started the label, I just wanted to keep the initials C A R. And um, I, I think I just kind of like the phrase call and response. There's this sort of I like the, that dynamic in music, um, the sort of question and answer between different elements or like different voices. Um, there's something about it that's, it's not, it's not didactic. Like I think, you know, to, to be a bit sort of like, ooh, am I shocking you here? Like rock and roll is kind of a, it's kind of fascist music in the sense, I, I mean that, not in the sense that you know obviously it's not but it it has this kind of uh, dynamic which is you've got the rock star on the stage and that and he's delivering some kind of cosmic truth to the audience and they're all like oh thank you for teaching us mm. um mm. or something like that um but the idea of call and response, it introduces some sort of confusion in there. There's like different elements playing off of each other and you're not getting this very simple didactic message. You're getting this sort of mixed and confused, bit schizophrenic message from it. And then, yeah. so that, that kind of appealed to me. A lot of the music I like has this sort of feeling of, um, it's not 100% obvious what it is, what it's doing. And then later on, I think the phrase call and response came to mean something a bit more specific about the relationship between the artist or the label or, you know, or me, et cetera, and the audience. Um, so it's, it's like saying, I'm going to reach out. We're reaching out part way. We're going to give you this, but you've got to do some work as well. You've got to yeah. kind of reach out to us. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, it's like you get if you look at art as like a scale from here to here at one extreme you've got masturbation this is you're just doing this you're just pleasing yourself with what you're making there yeah um when you hear artists saying it's like well i just make music for myself and if anyone else likes it that's a bonus it's like okay so you're wanking and then at the other extreme you've got prostitution you're making it purely for the other person you're only uh, you know you're just you're creating a a product and its work and there's a sort of um barrier between yourself and what you're doing there mm. and you know somewhere in the middle there there's great sex 
maybe optimistically I thought I can provide great sex for <laughs> for many people <laughs> so you a sort of a sort of a pimp of the uh... <laughs> <laughs> no because I, I'm I'm into it as well I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. kind of I'm I'm an equal participant I, I I'm more a kind of uh, an organizer of orgies would you say that I guess like because I was listening to some some of the artists you've got on your label and like I feel like uh, some of the music is you do have to give it time it is like a grower and I think that is that the work that you mean that you know it's not just this kind of uh, uh, you know mainstream commoditized easily consumable um, style of music like most stuff is on the radio and that um, you've got to really work to to really understand what what it is um, like some of the more kind of uh, avant-garde kind of music I mean some of that's out of my control just because anybody who's that popular doesn't want to be on a label like mine to begin with um, but the I mean sure I mean it's the kind of music I like and I don't really have any I don't really have a lot of interest in doing stuff with bands who are kind of who can get success the kind of normal way Mm, um, mm. I mean, I, I like a lot of really. I mean, I like Phil Collins. You know, I don't have a problem with like utterly mainstream music, but um, I, I don't mean it in that way. Just yeah, I mean, I like stuff that is that doesn't approach you too directly. But then the other side of it is that a lot of the music I'm picking up is is music that I found live, and I think when you're watching it live, the appeal is very direct. It's you, you can you can feel it in your uh, you can feel it physically a lot of the time, and just like this band I've got behind me, Part Chimp, yeah, ah, very much a, very much a kind of yeah, it's, like you said, you can really when you're there, it's like the intensity and the energy of the band. It's like yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so yeah, carry exactly. on, yeah, sorry. So um, I mean, there's what you have on a, what you end up with on a record and what you see live isn't necessarily the same thing um but generally yeah you're right i mean i think i like stuff that's that makes you work but i don't like stuff that's just sort of difficult for the sake of it I yeah want, yeah I want people to I, I want the artists to i i like being able to kind of find your way into something and then you and then realizing like ah oh, they're doing this oh that that's actually really sort of appealing and you know, to find the pop song hidden inside or something. It, just, it kind of makes me think about Trout Mass Replica, Captain Beefheart. It's like, right. it's not something I would stick on if I was just like, just want to, you know, something kind of easy to listen to. Uh, but I, I, I appreciate the influence that album had on a lot of bands, uh, you know, and a lot of that, that time period. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of Captain Beefheart, but like that, yeah, it's like, I, I view it differently to something I would just stick on when I'm kind of just want to relax or so I guess it's the mood you're in as well um, when you're listening to yeah I don't, I don't know what mood you have to be in to listen to a lot of the stuff that I've released but <laughs> I'm, this is why um, something like Spotify I just I hate it it's a stupid thing it's not it just doesn't it's not designed for 
labels like mine or for the kind of music I like because the only way you can make money from it is by just racking up millions and millions and millions of listens but with one of these uh, I'll buy like a you know this is Japan so it's still usually a CD from a band and I don't want to listen to that like a million times I want to listen to that album once a year and for 35 minutes this is like my favorite thing in the world to listen to like how do you kind of translate that experience into um the amount of money that it's worth paying that artist mm. uh, you know mm. you can't an algorithm can't really do that but if i buy the cd from the band then they got like you know 10 quid from me didn't they <laughs> so um, what what do you think about the band camp friday thing that that kind of once a month is it one friday every month they they wait yeah, I mean, I think it's great of them to do that. I I don't think we should get too sentimental about Bandcamp either because they're they're a monopoly in a way as well. Like they're this, you know, basically if you're selling indie music in the world now, Bandcamp is like the only place where everyone that everyone's going through. And I I think that they've they've set it up. I like the way they're set up. Mm. And the way that they've set it up is sort of um, sensitive to the existing dynamics that music has with with its fans. And it's sort of sensitive to the community aspect of it, that you can look at, you know, you can spy on other people who've been buying stuff that you like and see what else they like, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I, I still, I still, view it with a little bit of caution but i think it's great that they've done that um the Bandcamp fridays thing like um i don't go out to gigs at all really these days you can you can still go out to gigs in tokyo but not, probably should avoid it really but um i so i i'm not seeing music at all I, i've got loads more money now than i used to have <laughs> um because i'm not just pissing it away going out to three gigs a a week but um yeah every once a month i just say all right i'm gonna spend like 150 quid on stuff or i'm buying as much stuff as i can on Bandcamp, and um i found all kinds of amazing things on there yeah. got back way more in touch with music that's happening outside japan that way i was wondering if you would just give us like a, a kind of short rundown of of the different areas of, of tokyo like and the, the kind of key music venues um you live in koenji which mm. i believe is like quite a a thriving area of the kind of underground music scene in tokyo yeah yeah it's a it's a difficult question to answer people always people always ask me about like what are the key venues and it's kind of impossible to answer that because the venues themselves don't usually have their own particular community around them some of them do there's a few do. but um i mean like if you look at the, the website tokyo gig guide they have a directory of um, venues in the tokyo area and there's like they've got about 800 venues listed mm. not just tokyo some of the nearby sort of places as well but definitely the greater tokyo areas like 800 venues there and the scene is so fragmented there's no like this is the place kind of thing going on mm. and it's i think in in some ways it's sort of dishonest to try and sort of pick one out but um 
and the gigs just ha they happen where the organizers want them to and they'll often move around depending on the show depending on you know organizers chasing cheaper venues and things and um stuff but even like areas of tokyo that used to 20 years ago 25 years ago had their own sort of distinct music identity that's now that the information is all just kind of spread around on the internet i think that's kind of become much more homogenized as well um but yeah koenji good area generally it's got its own sort of local kind of creative communities and sort of networks there mm. um mm. it's like anarchist recycle shop here called shiroto no ran um they um sort of connected with the this guest house called Man Manuke Guest House. And so there's, and that place acts as a sort of funnel for a lot of weird people from overseas who kind of come here to stay there, and especially with people from like other parts of Asia. So like, I think Koenji's become, one of the interesting things I think about Koenji is that it's a sort of spot where weirdos from Taiwan or from wherever kind of, often land when they first visit when they first come to Tokyo in like Shimo Kitazawa's another area that's sort of famous for sort of indie music it's a, that's a bit more sort of straightforward indie rock there um, and then there's like you know Shinjuku, Shibuya loads of venues in those places so the, the, there's a, certain areas over the western side of the city is where most of the venues are clustered and then like along the Chuo line sort of train line that runs through Koenji dotted along there pretty much every station along the Chuo line has sort of some kind of cool venues or interesting things going on over the other side of town it's a bit more sparse but like in Koiwa there's a venue called Bush Bash which is excellent like probably the best venue in Tokyo really Bush sort Bush. of out on its own yeah. on the other side of town um punk and hardcore but like loads of sort of weird experimental stuff and they're doing a, there's a lot of people doing events there that are that i think are really interesting at the moment um throwing together this like really anarchic kind of punk spirited electronic music and noise and things together with like uh grindcore and sort of <laughs> punk and various other kinds of music and it's, that's kind of interesting so uh, you yeah. talked a little bit about yeah the venues and that i mean the gig economy in japan is would you say different to the uk it's mostly kind of pay to play um set up the pay to play thing here is sort of it's strange it's on the on the face of it that's the system although i if you're kind of if you've been at it for a while i don't think anybody's really asking you to pay um or at least you found the places that won't ask you to pay once a once a band gets a sort of relationship with a venue going then after a while you see that doesn't come up so much and especially younger bands and i just won't have anything to do with that to begin with i think and so i, I feel like it's that system's starting to dissipate a little bit certainly like more new venues are um there's people trying to shake off that system although there's still like the core of it is based around that for sure it's just um real estate just trying to extract rent mm. um mm. but 
if you don't want to pay if you don't want to pay to play then there's definitely enough places that you can play where you don't have to do that you're perhaps making a compromise on the uh quality of the pa and um gear that the venue has there set up for you to use for free um but yeah i noticed um, a few uh the few uh videos on youtube of um guys setting up on the street and just doing like a not like like a noise gig or something and then there's one where the, the some a police officer turns up and he's like trying to he's like patting him on the back trying to get him to stop playing <laughs> I, I think the police are showing up at all of those gigs. I don't know. Yeah, some people do that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's not that widespread. When I was, um, uh, I was going to say last year, because it's like last year doesn't exist in my head. It's just a sort of wipeout. In, um, it would have been two two years ago. I I was in Taiwan for a um, a show that I helped organise over there. Um, with like a bunch of other people and um while i was there i got a kind of heads up about um a noise gig that they were doing in like um an underpass underneath a, a highway and that was like a proper just sort of um just hey let's do the show right here kind of gig um loads of artists a whole bunch of people just filling up this uh this underpass and then anytime anyone wanted to walk through they'd just come down the stairs and just sort of be like <laughs> you know everyone <laughs> yeah. just steps back and lets them walk past <laughs> these people doing this like harsh noise or sort of weird ass experimental stuff and i just thought yeah you couldn't do that in japan could you <laughs> so yeah there, there's definitely people doing weird stuff in the streets or in koenji you see people at the um the sort of little um, piazza on the north side or the south side sometimes or like underneath the railway tracks mm. there's, there's people doing it but you you're locked in a little box usually if you want to make a noise in japan so what are some shows that uh, that you've put on that you sort of really kind of proud of that kind of stand out in, in your memory that you that you just like wow that was awesome that's a difficult question to answer. The um, the one the one that sticks out in my mind it isn't so much for the show itself, although the show went off really well. Mm. Um, it was more just for the um, like it. It's it's the experience. Oh god, it sounds so cheesy saying that. It's the but it's the the shared kind of communal experience that sort of is what makes it stick in your memory. I think. Um, and it was um so like the t-shirt i've got on here tension tension like tension's the name of an event that i've been organizing together with a friend of mine mayumi who's the guitarist from this like excellent um sort of noise punk band called people p hyphen iple and they're um so she and i decided to sort of we've both been organizing shows uh, independently for like about 10 years before this. And we decided it's like, instead of like competing against each other, let's, you know, work together on something. And so we put on, uh, we organized this show. We're pulling bands from all, all around Japan to play at this event. And because it was in the middle of winter, there was snowstorms kind of forecast for that day. And 
as it got closer, we started freaking out, like bands aren't going to be able to get here or mm. like nobody's going to come out and stuff like that. And so normally when you're on your own organizing an event, you just kind of, you just spiral, you know, uh, completely out of my control, but I'm going to panic. Mm. And, um, but it was kind of working with somebody else made it, sort of made it easier somehow. Like, she discovered she found um like a shrine to a weather god um which, which was quite near near my house near my apartment at the time and she's like okay let's just go there and pray to the weather gods and um so we, yeah we just sort of went there and we sort of dropped some money in a little sort of box and we prayed for good weather and it was just sort of like um this literally just putting it into the hands of the gods and this kind of therapeutic act of like shaking off the stress um the, the show ended up being kind of amazing but um <laughs> and then the um and then the snowstorms hit the uh, the next day and some of the band's flights home were cancelled but you know fuck it show's done now <laughs> you're on your own <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> so would you attribute but, uh, your uh, would you attribute the the praying to the the gods to the success of the of the gig <laughs> <laughs> um what it did was um it just it was it was being able to sh be, being able to share the experience of the gig with other people is amazing but being able to share the stress of organizing with somebody else i didn't realize like quite what a relief that was as well um mm. so yeah. um that was the thing that sticks out in my, yeah that was the thing that stuck out in my memory when you when you said that um, yeah in terms of um i get this is a kind of broad question um like what has your experience been overall running a record label um for other people thinking about maybe doing it or <laughs> or not um, it's like a cycle of of joy excitement hope followed by this sort of crashing ground failure disappointment <laughs> feeling i've let everybody down just endlessly and then getting older has like added this extra layer this sort of sense that i've wasted my life <laughs> um, i keep resetting the I, I keep resetting like the bar for what i consider success you know just sort of lowering it and lowering it and mm. you know still failing to meet it time and time again it's you know, just finding little reasons to continue, even though what you're doing is of no be no benefit to anybody, least of all yourself. That's uh, <laughs> a rousing kind of endorsement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's it's one of those cheesy things where it's like I, I do it because like I can't imagine not doing it. It's uh, like how empty would my life be without it? I don't know. Mm. I'd probably mm. be a much more successful writer because I would have just worked hard at something else. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I wouldn't have all of these kind of experiences. Yeah, definitely. It's fun. I don't know. It's just fun. Um, doing it is fun, but thinking about it is horrifying sometimes. Mm, mm. I guess the the financial side of it is probably pretty bleak. You know, because it's a fairly niche kind of music that you you releasing and stuff. So yeah, I mean, it's. It, but it's not the money so much as just sort of the worry that I'm boring people. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I want people to enjoy themselves, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. And money's a great, money's a good way, not a perfect, but it's a sort of, it's an easily measurable way of, you know, measuring the interest that people have in the thing that you're doing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So that's sort of where money's important, really. Um, we You mentioned when we last spoke about the kind of two big music promoters, uh, uh -huh. Creative Japan and Smash Japan. Um, yeah, I mean, they're not the only ones. I mean, there's also, uh, especially for like indie music, there's people like Hostess Club. But um, yeah, like Creative Man organizes the Summer Sonic Festival and Smash Japan does Fuji Rock. So those are the Fuji two Rock. big yeah. sort of summer festivals for international that have international bands at them. Um, so they'd, they'd be sort of bringing in like lightning bolt and and that would have been probably somebody a bit more indie that would um i mean lightning bolt are um <laughs> a kind of interesting one because they're they're a band who they're, they're a sort of famous cautionary story among organizers here because um they like showed up and were just caught by the um immigration folks and they're just packed onto a plane and sent back home because they didn't have their they didn't have visas um oh. and the, the rumor i don't know how true this is was that part of the reason for that was some kind of territorial dispute among like the promoters here that one of the promoters just kind of shot them to the cops to screw screw over like a rival who kind of <laughs> felt that he'd been kind of jumping into his territory or something <laughs> i like i said i don't know how true that is but it's i like i, I like to believe to be it true, so i believe yeah it, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like i remember when i was first getting going out to gigs here and just sort of seeing the famous bands then if like the strokes or the white stripes were coming over that would be smash or creative man mm. um i think when yola tango came over a couple of years ago i think that was one of them um but like i said there's also like there's a few others and i think for like hostess club are one who like bring over a lot of sort of not like top level famous but kind of uh you know quietly legendary indie bands yeah um, yeah yeah like um, sort of like thurston moore or something i think they did thurston moore's tour uh, quite recently yeah. Um so so yeah you kind of we talked a little bit about the 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 kind of uh, logistics of of bringing uh, you know but bands from overseas so you, you did you did uh, put a tour on for a, a band from the Philippines an all girl band the the male gaze um yeah. so how what was the process like uh, for you in terms of the you know putting the tour on and, and getting them over and the, getting the visas and all that with them um like the problem with getting artist visas for people coming over is that fundamentally you can't you can only apply for it if you have a company with like capital above a certain level and with above a certain number of employees um and so if you're an indie promoter like me who wants to go through and just get all the proper visa stuff set out you have to go through another label or promoter and 
pay them a fee to act as the the intermediary to sort of get all of the paperwork sorted out and they'll charge like a hundred thousand yen two hundred thousand yen i don't know to do that and so you know that's just they for the kind of scale of tours that we're doing you're not doing that mm. but the law seems to have like a kind of you can tour here without a visa as long as you're not getting paid for it right and you know, which just puts you on the same level as any Japanese band because nobody gets any fucking money from stuff here. <laughs> um, and of course, if you just, if somebody, if some kind person just happens to just slip you a brown paper bag with some cash in it at some point, then... Yeah, it's not going to... No. Um, with... <laughs> I don't want to kind of... Uh, with the male gaze yeah we just we're just like well all right we're just not going to pay you for it but i did bring them over and um uh even but if you're from the philippines coming to japan even just to get a tourist visa you have to apply to the japanese government for that and you can't do that more than two months before so if you're booking a tour you have to book that six months in advance so you have to start booking it six months in advance so we had to book it not knowing if they'd even be able to get tourist visas to come over here um and so that was a bit of a panic right but yeah like they did um like i said legally i'm like 98 percent certain that it's okay for them to come over and play shows <laughs> but even so we were kind of like super careful we i just told them leave your guitars at home and just tell me what kind of guitar you play and i'll borrow one that's the same yeah that kind of yeah thing. yeah um because we don't want them arriving at the airport and just having and just getting interrogated with a load of annoying questions and stuff from like distrustful immigration staff, even if what they're doing is legit. Um, and for flights from the Philippines to Japan are really cheap, and I could we could bring the whole band over for the same as the cost of flying one person over from Europe. So in the end, we like i didn't lose any money on that tour nobody really made any money from it but you know that's that's probably a, a yeah that's pretty good isn't it to break even and but also know. like we had a lot of help um and a lot of people just kind of put in a lot of work for free for that you um like that um mayumi from people again like she was um her band were kind of they did a we did a split of the two bands you know and so we made it a kind of tour for both of them mm. and she put in loads of work and i'm fairly sure i'm fairly sure she lost some money on sort of um some of the some of the work she did but um she also organized like the best show of the tour as well uh, so where, where did you where did the where were the dates then um which which um locations uh, like most of it most of it was in tokyo we were kind of quite um careful about how far we went out but um we we went out to like matsumoto in like nagano prefecture and then we did a show in hamamatsu which is a kind of smallish city in shizuoka prefecture we they're, they're not like the big cities or anything but i just booked those two shows because both those towns have very cool record stores in them oh, okay and yeah. um i just wanted to i just thought okay let's like do a show near a place where somebody might buy it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um 
yeah it doesn't hurt to make a good relationship with the the straws that you're going to keep harassing every time you put something out I, um, I, yeah. I didn't include this question but i wanted to ask, uh, for people kind of wanting to check out call and response who 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 are your kind of i don't want to say flagship bands but um who should they what kind of bands should they check out um off the top of your head um i mean it depends what you're into i, I mean if you're just getting into it then or if you're just looking to dip your toes in then there's um well last year just before um coronavirus ruined everything we celebrated our 50th release the plan is like you do a hundred and then quit and so this is like halfway and so i made a zine with some articles and sort of that i wrote or that other people connected to the label wrote and we called call and response is half dead and there was a double cd compilation with that and that's probably the best place to start the first disc is just um favorite songs from call and response artists as chosen by other call and response artists um so i didn't pick the tracks for that i just i got other people got people on the label to choose their favorite songs by other people on the label and then the second disc was um sort of unreleased or rare or kind of those kinds of things so you know i have that and that's listed um, on your band camp uh, for per- the, to buy the first the first disc you can you can buy the first disc on band camp if you want the zine and the second disc then you can buy that from our um from our website although if you're from the uk you can't because brexit has ruined everything Good old Brexit. If you're from the UK and you want it, just send me an email and I'll we'll figure something out. But I just don't want to do all the um, go through all the fucking hassle for the yeah. um, just all all the kinds of um, sort of licenses and things that they you seem to need. You know, it just I've had some stuff. I've had some stuff being sent over from the states and it's taken like three weeks to arrive, like a tiny package. Um, yeah, I mean, like coronavirus has sort of slowed down a lot of uh, overseas shipping as well, hasn't it? Because there's no flights going anymore. That's it. Yeah. Um, so uh, when so one of my previous guests, um, or two of them, you you're good friends with, and um, Rio Taro, you've put on his band, uh, Loop Rider. Uh, so when yeah. did you when did you meet Dave then? Um, and I don't know. Um, I don't know if I really met Dave. I Dave just sort of gradually happened to me. Um, <laughs> he's like he and I are not exactly the same scene. He's more in the kind of um, noise experimental sort of underground side of the scene. Um, mine was more sort of guitar bands and um, indie-ish stuff. There, there's but there's definitely a sizable overlap between us and so we'd just be at the same gigs and mm. you know you know what dave looks like he's just somebody who you're just walking down the street in Coenji and you're gonna notice him anyway and so after a while it's just like we we kept seeing each other and so we started talking and um you know he's an enthusiastic guy and he'll he, he likes he, 
you know, he's not sort of, um, he's not one of those people who's um, protective of the information of their special little scene or anything, you know. He, um, you know, he wants the best for everyone and he tells you anything cool that's going on there. He's just like a, um, a great person to, um, to just like figure out what's going on. He tell, he'll tell you what he knows. You know? mm. Some people can be kind of dicks about it, you know. Yeah, you can just sort of like, yeah, this is my thing. Yeah, yeah, I know. I had I checked out the uh, the the video, um, Jebby Otto versus. It's like the the band, like a robot version of the band fighting. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I spotted. Uh, yeah, yeah, I spotted Dave in in the uh, near the near the end of the video doing his um, fist pumping, um, signature yeah, fist yeah. pumping. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's great. It's a great video. People should check it out. Jebby Otto versus... I can't read this. Okay, Jebby Otto. Okay, Jebby Otto uh, on YouTube. Yeah. Really, really fun video. Um, that was um, that was made by by uh, Matt Schley, who's uh, another another friend of ours from this sort of my little Koenji circle of good folk. He's made a lot of videos for Call and Response stuff. He made... Um, he's made... A, at least one he's he made a couple of videos for loop rider as well yeah it's uh, very uh professional and yeah yeah he's um, a cool guy uh so jebby otto uh, i did i think i actually saw them when i was out there um so yeah you did one of the members is the sister of of dave's wife is that right i think that's what he told me or did, did yeah. I get that completely wrong yeah yeah yeah, no, that's, yeah right. that's right yeah <laughs> So, uh, Dave's her little brother. Say again. Dave's her little brother. <laughs> yeah. um, but she's also um, that's uh, Madoka, the, the singer from Jebiotto. She's also the vocalist in People, which is um, ah okay. A lot of the, there's a lot of kind of interconnections between these various people there. Yeah. Um, so uh, we mentioned a little bit about we, we talked a little bit about your the book that you that you published uh, quit your band notes from the japanese underground um musical notes from the japanese underground right? musical notes from the japanese underground so yeah, uh, Dostoevsky sort of reference there in the oh yeah 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 are you a, are you a fan of the... i've never read it i just kind of thought doing a doing a pun on Dostoevsky's uh, notes from the underground would be uh it just made me laugh and i told <laughs> told the publisher so how about that? And then I went, ah, no, that's shit, isn't it? And, you know, he just put it on the fucking cover. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm happy. So how did you, how did you feel about the book and, and its reception? And, um, it's pretty it, obvious what well, it's about, uh, but you could give, yeah, if you could give us like a little kind of synopsis of, well, the um, the origin of it was the um, the publisher um, uh, Matthew Matthew Chozik, another Matthew. Um, he's um, yeah, he was like starting his own publishing company, and he 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 also he he was um, teaching university classes about sort of um, media and various things like that. And he was often using articles that I was writing for the Japan Times, because back then I was doing a column about music in the Japan Times. And he would often use them with his students. So his idea was like, hey, why don't I make a book compiling 
some of your most interesting columns and i i kind of was like horrified by that idea because this is stuff that i'd written a long time ago and i was like oh no that's bad I, mm. you know all right i'll write you a new one <laughs> you know and so with that i i tried to I, I mean i didn't really like the idea of a just sort of disconnected series of essays on different topics i wanted to sort of unify it a little bit so mm. i kind of tried to put it in a bit more context um by sort of my you know something personal my introduction to the music scene here in japan and then zoom back and give a little bit more kind of historical context about this sort of history of music in japan and then get into um essays on different topics and you know try and kind of link them together in some more ways so that was the idea there um and but the, the whole time i was writing it it had already been kind of lined up for a japanese translation as well so i was sort of aware that i'm writing for two audiences like for um people from outside japan who don't know anything about the music scene here and just want an introduction and people who have their own kind of understanding of the music scene here mm, mm. um you know like the people around me in the music scene whose you know whose world it is that i'm writing about and describing what surprised me was that when the japanese edition came out it ended up coming out from uh, the publisher it was a bigger publisher than I was expecting. Um, and they marketed it much more widely than I was expecting. And it ended up reaching an audience that I wasn't expecting. And so it was kind of interesting seeing the, the reaction to the English one was, I think, pretty much positive for mm. most people. Like one, one of Matthew's students came onto my blog and just wrote, I hated this so much. This like made me cry and hate my life and work. And this is awful. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have to write a fucking essay about this shit book. How dare you write it? But like, that was the only negative comment I've had about the book in England. Um, but the, um, the Japanese edition, if, if you look on um, uh, Amazon JP, the reviews are kind of evenly split between people who've given it five stars and people who've given it like zero. Like people loved it or really hated it. And um, I think part of that is that I was, yeah, there's this whole kind of bunch of people who are interested in, you know, just Japanese rock music fans. Mm. And I just wasn't writing for them, you know. I, I do a kind of broad strokes sort of introduction to Japanese music history and things, which I, you know, took a few sort of liberties for the, the sake of just making it all fit into a small space and kind of making it flow in a sort of logical sounding way. Mm. And then the essays, which are really about drawn using examples from my experience of really underground music that nobody knows or cares about and you know people were just like he's just writing about this stuff that doesn't matter like i i was sort of ignoring huge sort of reams of stuff that they from the past 20 years that they thought was important uh, okay you know, yeah I, I wasn't trying to do that i was just trying to describe the world or the environment that the 
that musicians or the kind of people in the music scene live in and just using the examples close to me to sort of depict that but of course like you pick it up just like oh i wonder what the foreigner thinks of our country's music and it turns out oh i don't have any opinion about the kind of garbage you listen to <laughs> so but then people a lot of people in the music scene the people who you know a lot of yeah people who are actually kind of active in the music scene some of them read it and they were just like oh my god i feel seen finally somebody's kind of uh well, that's nice you know, yeah put this on the page and it feels real you know and um i got some really warm words from them it was um that i found you know very moved very and moved. uh where where is it currently available for a purchase um Fuck knows. i don't know yeah amazon um quit your band yeah, I mean it's a, it, it's available on the books web book websites and things and stuff. I don't, I'm not sure honestly, um, but you know it's it's on. I think it's on the that awful thing that Amazon does that's kind of like Spotify but for books. You know, uh, like a Kindle, like like a Amazon Kindle, Kindle thing or something. Yeah. yeah, I think it can be on that as well. I'm not sure. Yeah. So what you can yeah. do is just sign up for the free trial of that and read it, and then you just cancel, cancel the. Trial. Yeah. You get like a month free, don't you? Um, yeah. There you go. Um, so, more 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 current times. Um, global pandemic uh, has happened. Have you been coping? Um, and you put some virtual gigs on and stuff as well. Uh, yeah, a few. Um, I'm trying to figure out where to go with that next because um, the vaccination thing in Japan's just, I think it, they only started with medical personnel a couple of days ago. And we're not going to get it in for months till mm. next year. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, like I think the thing with um, streaming shows was it. Um, what kind of disappointed me about that was like, I was talking to a friend of mine from Berlin yesterday, actually, and he's sort of involved in a venue there. And he was like, he was saying to me, Hey, so the streaming stuff in Japan, like, I don't get it. Like the streams are all like, you have to buy tickets. And I'm like, yeah, and he's like, no, why would, who's buying those? Like, if you did that in Berlin, nobody's gonna take you seriously. Like it has to be just free or like with some donation sort of thing going on. And I, I was thinking, yeah, like the, this was a great opportunity for Japanese indie music to kind of open itself up to access from like all over the world. Mm. And some really positive things came out of it. Like bands started taking the internet a bit more seriously there's a lot of stuff going up on Bandcamp now that wasn't before. Although um, a lot of people as well, or a lot of kinds of brands and labels as well, seem to be doing this, you know, for me, I find kind of disappointing. They're going past, they're skipping Bandcamp and going straight to stuff like Spotify, which to me just seems like the worst of both worlds. Mm. Um, but the with streaming shows I, I, there was a kind of rush to just recreate the same sort of insular black box world where 
only like the band's two or three mates are kind of going in there to to see them and it's this would have maybe been an opportunity to sort of but i don't know like um i think the problem another problem is that like in berlin um pay what you want donation style is just embedded in the way that music culture there works like venues don't charge you like uh, for most shows but there's a guy on the door and he just kind of looks at you witheringly if you don't drop like sort of three two or four euros in a little oh, box okay. um you know there's a guilt gate and so the idea that you donate that you just drop a little bit where you can is just natural there in japan there's not really any culture of that for like a couple of years before the pandemic I was doing free shows on Monday nights and we'd just have a big jar at the at the bar and it's like, just drop some money in, you know. And the venue were great about it. They it was their idea and they just gave all the money to the bands. So even if there wasn't that much money, anyone who played went away with a bit of money. Mm. Which is sort of unusual. But yeah, there's not a lot of there's not really a lot of culture of doing that. And audiences don't naturally really do that. All the shows I did were free, but please give us a donation. And, you know, we brought in some quite reasonable amounts of money for the venues that we did it at. But it was all just me and my foreign mates who's, who were kind of dropping the money in. Yeah. You know, it was Dave or it was me or it was somebody else. Um, and Japanese audiences, you know, a few people did, you know, very, very kindly, but it's not, it wasn't a sort of natural sort of thing for them to do. Mm, mm. So pe people kind of like to know very clearly what they're, what is expected of them, I suppose, is the thing. Do you mean uh, in terms of people in Japan, like Japanese people, mm. they want to know exactly Kind of I mean, like... I don't know about. I, I don't know if I'd want to extend it to a sort of broad generalization of Jap of the Japanese people exactly, but just audiences at gigs here. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just everything's organized in a very sort of clear way, a very clearly defined way. Mm. And, um, there isn't a huge amount of culture of um, things operating outside of those those kind of lines mm, mm, yeah um so last question um uh free free records that uh that changed your life or had a huge impact on your life um i don't know picking just three is a <laughs> difficult one okay so like one really important record for me would be chairs missing by wire um i think that was a good example of just the the music of where i started really getting into like music myself rather than the music that was just being played on the radio um obviously you know came up in the Britpop era and like elastica were just ripping off all of these songs to to begin with and i think that's probably where i first heard of them from but that album just chairs missing just blew me away um when I was going, when I went to, um, when I was going to the Pur Nights at Moles, I 
just used to the the DJ there, Julia, uh, Julia Lax. She was she's this this really cool girl that they had do um, was the main DJ there when I was going, and I just used to harass her to play wire all the fucking time. <laughs> sure, she must have hated me. Um, so anyway, that's one. Um, Corner Response put out a uh, wire tribute album a long time ago. Got like twenty one bands, and we covered Pink Flag just track by track. I, I will check them out because I. I... I'm sorry to say I've never heard of them. <laughs> Might be uh, excellent. Band. Slip through the cracks, but yeah. And uh, then second one, I'm gonna say Alien Lanes by Guided by Voices. I've heard of them. Uh, yeah. Sort of like there's just I I love the there's like what 28 tracks or something on sort of 40 minutes. Um, there's so much like sort of chaos and like anarchy going on inside the music of this album and on B thousand the one before it. Um, there's like all of these like fragments of unfinished songs that are just sort of in there in these like really kind of rough forms where like the, the amp will just cut out halfway through the song and then cut back in again and they're like ah oh, don't worry that's fine. Um, and you know this. The songs are like so in in a way they're really tightly refined they it's very there's just like the hook and there's the melody and it's uh it it doesn't go through the motions of kind of structuring it properly it just gets the cool bits that work and it just hits those parts mm. but there's something really loose about it as well just the you know the whole lo-fi aspect of it and robert pollard's lyrics are just uh he's one of my favorite lyricists he has this amazing sort of uh, way of getting just throwing words together in like completely meaningless but ways but that are really uh, evocative just choosing the right words for the sound and the these very kind of intangible images nice third one i i want to pick a japanese one <laughs> because of the situation yeah but I don't want to pick one of my own labels releases because that's lame. I think I'm going to say like the album Best Education by Panic Smile because Panic Smile are like in the scene that I found myself in when I was here, they were kind of quite central to it. And I, I've never released anything quite like Panic Smile, but a lot of the stuff I have released was definitely kind of circling the same kind of um, world as them very influential band on a lot of the bands I work with like it's hard to describe them like basically and I, I think Best Education is their best album or the, the best album of that lineup of the band anyway mm. it's post-punk Captain Beefheart that's the gist of it they're just an incredible band they're from the in the south is it Fukuoku is that well I mean they, the they were based in Tokyo at that time but the main guy is from Fukuoka they, they're sort of nowadays two of them are in Fukuoka I think one of them's in Tokyo and one of them's in Nagoya at the moment <clears> the current lineup um, they sort of they, there was a song on that album that was called like I think it was that album it's called Pop Song Brackets We Can Write <laughs> you know they just do all this sort of chaotic sort of uh free jazz sort of noise punk stuff and then they're just sort of pop song we can write 
but and it's just like we can write pop songs it's just that we choose not to most of the time <laughs> you know they like they reel you in but they're kind of holding you at a distance as well yeah call and response yeah yeah they came up in um the episode with Riotaro. um she's mm. a big in big uh inspiration for his his yeah band. yeah they were one of the bands that me and Riotaro sort of bonded around because uh, those were the kinds of shows that i was going to when me and Riotaro met for the first time as well great um so that's pretty much it um so thank you so much for coming on ian and thanks for having me on and sort of listening to my ramblings <laughs> sort of for way too long <laughs> maybe maybe i'll be i'll come out there uh and um you know get involved um please do so uh we've got to wait for this stuff to to blow over first it's um pandemic stuff. 10 years from now then see you in 10 years 10 years yeah <laughs> all right thank you ian take yeah, care now thank you bye-bye yeah Thank you for listening and thank you for watching. I just want to say a big thanks to my guest, Ian Martin, for coming on the show. It was a really fun episode to do. Uh, I particularly enjoyed the analogy about the music industry. Uh, I've not heard that one before, so um, yeah, and I thought it was uh, fairly accurate. And um, the story about him praying to a Buddhist shrine to ensure the uh, gig that they were putting on went ahead, uh, I thought that was, that was pretty cool. If you want to check out Call and Response Records, he's got a website. That's www.callandresponse, all one word, dot Jim Do Free, all one word. That's J I M D O F R E dot com. Uh, he's on Facebook as well. It's facebook.com forward slash Call and Response Tokyo, all one word. It's on Bandcamp. Call hyphen and hyphen response.bandcamp.com Twitter twitter.com forward slash car records and Instagram instagram.com slash car records at the end I asked Ian three records that changed his life and now I wanted to share with you three records that changed my life first record is by a band called Charlotte Field who I've mentioned quite a lot uh, recently and on my social media as well uh, this is the album um, how long are you staying uh, I bought this record well it was probably well over 10 years ago um, because they broke up around 2007 I think so yeah uh, but for me they were really really influential uh, early on for me as a as a musician and a drummer because uh, that was kind of my sort of formative years um, and I got to see him live a few times. He actually stayed in this house uh, after a gig they played in Wigan uh, and also m my old house in Salford, they stayed there as well. Um, yeah and uh, the, the drummer as well, uh, Ashley Marlow, uh, he was like, I kind of really idolised him. Uh, he's just an incredible drummer, you know, amazing technique. Uh, just seems to fit perfectly uh, into their sound, you know, it's like this really kind of discordant, um, kind of uh, chromatic, math rocky kind of guitars and and screaming kind of punky screaming vocals, um, you know, uh, bouncing off this like funky kind of funky rock drummer. It's like it's, it, you know, it doesn't seem like it would work, but it it just works beautifully. 
um, as a whole sound. And uh, obviously, and seeing them live, they were just incredible live. Just so, you know, just like they just put the heart and soul into every performance. Uh, that's how it seemed to me, anyway. Uh, it was just like really intense and powerful. Uh, so yeah, that was the, that's the first um, record really that um, changed my life. Um, it made me fall in love with music. It made me want to really give playing drums and being in bands and everything a proper go. Uh, so yeah, massive influence for me. Second record that changed my life. Uh, it was a different kind of impact. Uh, this was a kind of around a, a period of my life where I'd just uh, gone through a very toxic relationship and it was kind of post toxic relationship breakup and uh, yeah this album is by uh, an american electronic musician uh, who goes by the name of baths uh, it's just a solo guy uh, a bit like fortet and um, uh, caribou um, and the album was his debut studio album and it was called cerulean and yeah it just um it really connected with me on a very deep level and it kind of gave me some hope um, you know when my sort of self-esteem and confidence was was shattered uh, it just um, it kind of touched me and connected with me in that period of my life uh, when I needed something to to kind of hang on to so yeah this album was really impactful um, I guess I don't know I wouldn't say like it didn't change my life it just had a lot of uh, meaning and it's it, um, you know it was very important to me uh, during a very difficult period in my life yeah so that's uh, yeah it's called Cerulean by um, uh, Baths third record that changed my life is by a Canadian electronic musician goes by the name of Tim Hecker this was also a debut studio album uh, it was released in 2001 the album was called Haunt Me if you're not familiar with Tim Hecker, um, I'd say his sound is kind of like ambient soundscapes, um, almost kind of boring on the kind of film score side. Um, but for me, yeah, this this album um, more recently had uh, a big impact on my life. Uh, I've I've struggled for a long time with uh, depression and anxiety, and uh, you know. Um, I've been been on the brink a few times and uh, I think over the, the, the summer uh, last year 2020 uh, obviously with lockdown as well um, I spent a lot a lot of time just walking around nature and stuff like my local park and stuff and listening to this album and it just felt it kind of feels like you you, you know you're kind of alone but um, the, the music is, is is kind of your companion through that darkness uh, that's how it feels to me when I'm listening to it you know I feel like I'm kind of connecting which is something is kind of like the biggest kind of um, thing that you don't have when you're in a depression is you, you feel disconnected from, from everything and everyone so listen to this this music walking through nature this record uh, I felt I was connecting um, which you know is is a, is only a good thing when you when you're going through something like that uh, yeah so I'd say 
Uh, another kind of album that I wouldn't say changed my life, but uh, was was really has been really important and really uh, helpful. Uh, I guess kind of like uh, therapeutic. Um, it's helped me with, with uh, my struggles with, with um, depression. Um, so yeah, that's my third record. If you're watching on YouTube, please could you like and subscribe to my channel to help the podcast grow. And if you're listening on Apple iTunes, please could you leave a review under the ratings and review tab. You can also find me on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash the scene was dead anyway. I'm also on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash the scene was dead anyway. And I'm on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash TSWDA. Next up on the show, Don McLean of Fortissimo Records and his band Action Beat. You might have heard Don's name come up in one of my previous episodes with Emma from Fat Out. Don was an influential figure on the MK Don's DIY scene in the early noughties through his label Fortissimo Records. And so he's going to be coming on with his band Action Beat. It's going to be the first band style interview that I'm going to be doing. So we'll see how that goes. Thank you for listening and thank you for watching. I'm your host, Rick Walland, and you were listening to The Scene Was Dead Anyway. Mm-hmm.